Hello, you're listening to Earth Matters. Earth Matters brings you environment and social justice stories. Today's story was produced in the studios of Radio 2XX, Canberra, on the lands of Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples for Radio 3CR in Melbourne, Wurundjeri country, and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. I'm back, Horridge. Today I'm talking to soil scientist Walter Yener and campaigner Cindy Iritz. Now they're two climate activists who've been in demand overseas with a proposal how to build a global soil carbon sponge that would soak up CO2 and save us from global warming. Cindy, how did you get involved in all of this? When I uh, retired from my career, I spent a couple of years doing action research, trying to work out where was the best place for me to put my time and my energy to be able to make the biggest difference. And I came upon soils and discovered that uh, soils can actually, through plants, take carbon out of the atmosphere and store them stably in soils. And I was like, wow, okay, (laughs) this is where I need to put my time and energy. So that's what I've been doing. You can store carbon in soils and plants do that. Could you explain a little bit for us? Yeah, well, I mean, most people understand about forests and when forests are cleared, that carbon goes up into the sky. So basically it's the opposite. We all learnt about photosynthesis in schools. You know, through photosynthesis, the plants take carbon out of the sky and it goes down into the roots and is actually dripped into the soil and then it's held securely in the soil. It's quite exciting. You were invited to be part of a delegation to COP21 in Paris. What was that? I had networks in different parts of the world and one of these networks established an organisation called Regeneration International and they decided that they would invite delegates from all over the world to come to Paris and I was one of those delegates. The Paris uh, people were actually starting an initiative called 4P1000 which uh, is under the Lima Paris Accord. I was there with about three dozen other delegates and It was amazing, mostly because we'd all been quite working in isolation, so the solidarity was incredible. I looked up what the 4 per 1,000 initiative is and found that an annual growth rate of 4% in the soil carbon stocks per year would halt the increase in the CO2 concentration in the atmosphere related to human activities. The 4 per thousand international initiative was launched in 2015 at the COP21 International Climate Conference. It consists of federating voluntary stakeholders of the public and private sectors. And the aim of the initiative is to demonstrate that agriculture, and in particular agricultural soils, can play a crucial role where food security and climate change are concerned. The ambition of the initiative is to encourage stakeholders to transition towards a productive, highly resilient agriculture based on the appropriate management of lands and soils, creating jobs and incomes, hence ensuring sustainable development. (laughs) 
We are at a position now, after 50 years of hard evidence that CO2 is going up and increasing, and we're in a position now where CO2 will continue to rise and drawing down or, or just slowing down emissions or even politically pretending to slow down emissions is nowhere near enough. Mm-hmm. And so it's not just a matter of slowing emissions. We still have to do that, but we also must and can draw down massive quantities of carbon naturally back into the soils and the biosphere. Up to now, we've completely ignored the potential of our residual natural biosystems to draw that down. But if we stop ignoring that and start enhancing that, yes, we can draw down twice as much carbon as we are now annually emitting into the atmosphere. And that really is the imperative for the climate, you know, globally in the next decades. We haven't got much time. Building up our soils with carbon could draw down a massive amount of CO2. I'd like to dig into the science a little more. What are soil microbes? What do they do? Soil microbes are really the the active agents. They're really the frontline soldiers or activists that are working right across the planet, have been doing that for 420 million years, and they're the things that actually sequester that sugar and the root exudates that Cindy mentioned and store that sugar as stable soil carbon. In doing so, they build that soil carbon sponge, that loose, you know, fluffy, aggregated soil that is able to hold water and nutrients and drives the whole productivity of all our biosystems. It's that soil carbon sponge that holds water, allows rain to infiltrate and be retained, and of course it's that hydrology that governs 95% of the heat dynamics of the blue planet, Earth, And it's that hydrology that we must now restore to safely, naturally cool the planet. I read that biological agriculture that puts carbon back in the soils can give us healthier food. Can you please explain? Every living organism on this planet needs nutrients. It needs those nutrients for its whole biochemistry, for its health. We need in the excess of 30 different nutrients in the right concentration, forms, ratios and balances. And we get those nutrients naturally from our soils. And the things that make those nutrients available in the right concentration, ratios, forms and balances are the microbes, the fungi that are involved with taking up those nutrients and then transporting them to plants in exchange for the sugars that Cindy mentioned the plants are exuding. And so really the health of our food and the health of people then depends on are we getting these right nutrients. We can only get those nutrients if we grow food in these natural ways from these natural soils because otherwise we're dependent on fertilizer nutrients and invariably we have 
hyper concentrations of some and deficiencies in others and in a sense that's causing a massive disease consequences right across modern humans because the whole nutritional integrity of our food is fundamentally compromised. What sort of diseases are you thinking of there? Well, over the last 60 years, 70 years, we've had an explosion of a whole range of self-induced diseases. Okay, These are diseases which are really our biochemistry malfunctioning, and that includes the cancers, the cardiac, the heart diseases, the autoimmune, the whole range of uh, diabetes, a whole range of diseases. Attention are, deficit disorder. Yes, attention deficit, allergy reactions. But these are all diseases that directly relate to what we put into our bodies through our food. And if the nutritional integrity of that food is compromised, by definition so is our biochemistry and so is our preventative health. And so we've had this massive exponential explosion where, yeah, two-thirds of the community globally are now either obese or malnourished or whatever, and that's all related to the lack of nutritional integrity of our food and how we've destroyed that through our agriculture because of our destruction of healthy soils. We have globally a $10 trillion a year global industrial food system. And of course it wants to produce its products in the cheapest possible way. And it's not really interested in our health because it makes even more money on then fixing the symptoms of that lack of nutritional integrity in what we're eating. You go to a supermarket and yeah, 98% of the shelf space is from these nutritionally poor products. And invariably that's what people are buying and that's what, again, trillions of dollars of marketing money is being spent on to induce us to buy that stuff. And of course, yeah, there's impediments, there's vested interest. So it's, it's a, as Cindy said, a very challenging, difficult area. How exactly are you proposing to produce healthier food in Australia? Working with groups of, or individually, with innovative farmers all over Australia and regions, and they're already, in a sense, doing it, but then really saying, yes, here is a natural way, here's a healthier way that we can regenerate those soils, grow better crops with far, far fewer artificial inputs, and in so doing, by through these natural processes, produce healthier food. And so our challenge now is to say, okay, how do we work with individuals, groups, and how do we actually help them to do that at that local level, but also get into markets, get into, get those products, those high premium, high nutritional integrity products into markets at the premiums that they deserve. Walter made the change to regenerative agriculture sound so easy, but Cindy could see some obstacles. Farmers who put themselves forward and try new things actually get like quite ostracised within their community. So um, there's a thing which is known in our field as the 100 mile rule, where within 100 miles of your farm, basically everybody thinks you're a fool. 
uh, and nobody wants to know you. So socially, you're like I said, you're ostracised. And you can imagine how difficult this makes. You know, farming is a traditional industry. Um, you know, relationships are obviously very deep in rural areas. Uh, you know, terribly hard. So what we've just been doing is actually walking with those innovators, giving them credibility, uh, giving them support. And this has actually made a big difference. And the net effect of that is that if there's more produce and products being required for export, that means that more land is getting regenerated. So the original story of the carbon being taken out of the atmosphere, stored in the soil, the more regenerative agriculture, the more exports that are happening of regenerative agriculture, you know, the better chance of us getting closer towards saving the planet one day. Walter, we know that there's been fires all over the place. When you see litter on a forest floor, dead branches and things, what do you think of? Rebecca, absolutely. Fires are going to be a critical determinant in our landscape. What's happened, of course, with climate change, whole landscapes are systemically aridifying, drying. Southern Australia will get 30% less rainfall, so it'll dry, but much more worrying than just a lower rainfall, is that the weather was going to become more variable, unreliable and extreme. With that drying and with that extreme climate, we're going to really go into dangerous fire, wildfire weather. And basically, it's going to go beyond the capacity for fire management, conventional fire management, to control. We've already seen that. We're now getting crown fires, we're getting basically fuel volatilising and burning in the crowns well ahead of any fire fronts, quite frankly impossible to put out on an extreme day. And so really we need to rethink the whole basis of fire management. We must do it, it's critical, but we need a whole new paradigm of approaches. And it's again very, very simple and it's what happens naturally. Okay, so we have photosynthesis that produces biomass. Okay, green plants grow and produce biomass, which is cellulose and lignin, woody tissue. But balancing, balancing growth, you know, the plant growth biomass production, there's an equal balancing function in nature, which is biodegradation. You know, the rotting down of that biomass largely by fungi, and bacteria and what have you to turn that fuel into stable soil carbon. You're with Earth Matters. I'm Beck Horridge. And I have in the studio with us today Cindy Iritz, who's a logistics expert, and Walter Yenne, a soil scientist. Every piece of biomass that's ever formed on land for the last 420 million years on this planet has either burnt back to CO2 or oxidised back to CO2 or being converted into stable soil carbon. Okay, and it's that balance between burning and stable soil carbon formation which, in a sense, we control. We control that through our land management and it's fungi that are the dominant factor in biodegrading it so it's not there in fuel. So really we've got a whole new opportunity. It's an amazing, powerful opportunity to say, look, can we actually biodegrade the fuels 
so as to avoid those dangerous fire periods? And the answer is yes, we can. We can do that practically readily. And instead of having five to ten tonnes of fuel per hectare accumulating every year in our forest and invariably leading to extreme catastrophic wildfires, we can turn that five to ten tonnes of biomass into soil carbon, which will then hold water, increase the moisture retention of that soil and totally change the fire risk, both by reducing the fuel but also maintaining higher soil moisture levels. So in turning from a dry, sclerophyll, extreme habitat, that same forest we can turn into a moister, mesic, sheltered, you know, uh, more wet sclerophyll environment. This is fundamental Australian ecology that was described way back in the 60s by Beadle, another one. See, we have wet sclerophyll forests and dry sclerophyll forests on the same soils, in the same climate, with the same species. And it's really a matter of what's needed to turn it from a dry sclerophyll, fire-prone environment into a wet sclerophyll, more rainforest-inducing environment. And that is the activity of these fungi. We can control those, we can enhance those, and in that way preventatively reduce fire risks. And how does this relate to water? Because friends of mine from different places in New South Wales are saying their local creeks and rivers have gone dry. Can you talk to that, the drying up rivers and the the landscape that's so dehydrated? Yeah. Look, uh, absolutely, it's, it's again a critical symptom of what's happening in the landscape. With climate change, as we said, we get less rainfall, but it becomes more and more critical that instead of basically worrying about that we've got less rainfall, we've got to really focus on what happens to every one of a hundred raindrops that does fall. And again, does it infiltrate the soil to recharge the soil carbon sponge, our in-soil reservoirs, and therefore keep that landscape green and functioning and keep subsoil water recharging streams and springs to keep the rivers flowing? Or Do we allow that surface to become so compacted, so degraded, that basically 95% of those raindrops that do fall just rapidly run off in erosive flood flows and invariably cause drought as a consequence? So drought isn't anything to do with the weather per se. Drought is all about our mismanagement of our landscape. So we've prevented those 100 raindrops that do fall, staying in the landscape to keep that landscape green and healthy. And by cutting down so many trees, we've affected the hydrology cycle too, haven't we? We have fundamentally changed that soil hydrological cycle because of our agricultural land management practices. Because as we clear the land, as you say, cutting down trees, as we burn the land excessively... Indigenous fires were a completely different story. They were cool, mosaic burns, largely by women, that actually managed the surface fuel level but didn't actually degrade the soil, but ours are degrading the soil. So clearing, burning, cultivation, over-fertilisation, biocide use, which kills the soil microbial life, and bare fallows are all extremely impacting on 
our soils degrading, destructuring them, compacting them, causing most of this water to run off. So certainly as far as the whole hydrology of the landscape, it's making sure that every one of those 100 raindrops infiltrates is retained rather than running off. And we can do that by changing our land management practices. Well, that's great, Walter, but you didn't really explain what I wanted to know. How do you actually get fungi? How do you get them to eat more forest litter? Or how do you make more fungi? Right. Okay. Again, we just go back to nature, okay, because nature had beautifully balanced systems for doing this. And it all revolves around the carbon-nitrogen ratio in that forest litter. If we have dry eucalypt litter, particularly as we have now, basically it's got a carbon-nitrogen ratio of over 100 to 1. And so there's so much carbon, there's so little nitrogen in that litter, it's almost impossible to break down. And it just accumulates to create these dangerous fire weathers. But in nature, of course, we had a lot of animals and biodiversity in those forests, right? And these animals were extremely important in incorporating that nitrogen and turning around that litter to accelerate its breakdown. So let's just go through that. We had koala bears and the crown turning eucalypt leaves into basically frass, which was, uh, well, urine and excrement. So koalas, you could class them as aerial alimentary canals, right? They were just eating prodigious quantities of eucalypt leaves, excreting the nutrient as nitrogen litter, adding nitrogen to the forest floor in their urine and excrement to help drive the breakdown of that litter. We had vast quantities of leaf-eating insects, again, eating eucalypt leaves, turning 50% of that leaf into protein, insect protein, another 50% again into excrement. Nitrogen that rained down on the forest floor helped break down that litter. We had bandicoots and potteroos and paddy melons, little marsupials on the forest floor, continually digging for truffles, fungal fruiting bodies. Every night, these little potteroos, each of them would dig up 150 little holes. On a yearly basis, you know, zoologists have studied, they move six tonnes of topsoil a year per paddy melon, disturbing that forest floor, composting, accelerating that compost floor, putting extra nitrogen in. Go paddy melons. Go paddy melons. We had lyre birds, what we call scratchivores, scrub turkeys, bush turkeys, Uh, scratching through that litter continually, excreting in that litter, again, accelerating its composting to stable soil carbon. So what we're seeing is there was a myriad of biological life, all those little animals, those beautiful furry little animals, birds and what have you, and it was that biodiversity life that actually added nitrogen to the fuel, brought the carbon-nitrogen ratio down to about 20 to 1, not 100 to 1, and at 20 to 1, that litter breaks down rapidly to stable soil carbon to build the sponge, to build its water-holding capacity, and actually turn what were dry sclerophyll forests into progressively wet sclerophyll forests. Now, you can see this exquisitely for those people who 
uh, visited the south coast of New South Wales, where we have spotted gum forests on very dry, gravelly soils. And basically, in the same climate, those spotted gum forests can either be very, very dry, very fire-prone, or where they have enough nitrogen with their macrosamia, communis understories, and these animals turning into effectively wet sclerophyll pre-rainforest conditions. So it's as simple as accelerating the breakdown of that litter to reduce the fire fuel both through removing the fuel but also enhancing soil moisture. What are you going to do, like sprinkle fungi food on there? How do you actually do that with vast areas of forest? It seems like a bit of a call. Right. No, of course we don't sprinkle fungi around. There's no such thing. They're already there. But what we have to do is we have to now manage the forest. We have to respect and restore the biodiversity, the animal diversity. We understand these animals in the forest are critically part of their ecology. So we have to start looking at these forests not just as trees and timber, but actually as a living, functional, dynamic biosystem with these nitrogen cycles avoiding the fire. So it's really respecting, restoring the ecological biodiversity of those forests. But on top of that, we can do a lot of preventative work. We can, for example, have biological fire breaks where we, again, can put natural nitrogen onto road edges and accelerate the breakdown of litter actually creating biological fire breaks in those forests. Okay, we can do a whole lot of basically land management changes that actually limit the actual amount of fuel. By doing that, we can stop the fires crowning, going up into the crowns where they become unmanageable and uncontrollable and extremely dangerous. Walter Yenne and Cindy Iritz from Regenerate Earth, talking on the global soil carbon sponge. You've been listening to Earth Matters. This edition of Earth Matters was produced for Radio 3CR in Melbourne on Wiradjuri country and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. Earth Matters would like to thank the Community Broadcasting Federation for their generous financial support. And if you'd like to get in touch with Earth Matters team, you can email us at earthmatters3cr at gmail.com or visit our Facebook page on Earth Matters 3CR Radio or follow us on Twitter at EarthMRadio. If you'd like to listen to or share editions of Earth Matters, you can find this and all the Earth Matters podcasts at 3cr.org.au forward slash Earth Matters. The Earth Matters team will be back next week with more environmental and social justice stories from all over this beautiful blue planet. I'm Beck Horridge. That amazing music we've been listening to is the music of Dar Shelton and that song Encounter by the River.